Hello, everyone, and welcome to Friend Diagram. This is the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we will be doing a head to head episode on our favorite summer hidden gems Sorcerer and Love and Mercy. Warning, spoilers ahead. Hi, Remy. Hi, Kat. How are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Just kind of prepping for the final steps of the move. We're Mm -hmm. about two weeks out, so that's exciting. I know this is going to be the last time we're recording for a while, right? Yeah, for a bit. You texted me that you got the meet and greet of a lifetime or like the Q&A of a lifetime. Q&A, yeah. Not a meet and greet, but I... I texted you to, you know, move recording today to be a little bit earlier mm-hmm. than normal because I was idly looking at movie <laughs> tickets last night that I, which is something I do sometimes. And I was perusing the Lincoln Square AMC's tickets for today, Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I had been planning on going to that venue to see the release of the 4k restoration of old boy Mm -hmm. uh, which is an older film i'm not sure if you're familiar with it it's pretty famous in terms of korean cinema that's crossed over to mainstream u.s Mm -hmm. awareness (laughs) yeah i i'm not familiar with that film but uh, film scene did put it on my radar recently because mm. they are showing the 4K. I'm sure they're showing it too. Yeah, yeah. a lot of places are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they posted a Instagram post that said, move over Barbenheimer, it's bold boy time now. And it was the Barbie <laughs> movie poster up next mm-hmm. to the old boy. Wow, poster. incredible. Bold boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's like one of the highlights of August that I've been anticipating since I know that new releases sometimes decrease around this time of year, Mm -hmm. just specifically for August. So this has been on my radar, but then I was perusing the tickets for today and I saw that one of the showings has a director Q&A with director Park Chan-wook and it's moderated by Nick Wending Refn, who is also a really famous director in his own right. Mm -hmm. He directed Drive and Bronson and Only God Forgives and Copenhagen Cowboy and the Pusher series and all of this good stuff. So they both have a lot in common in their films and a lot of, you know, non-overlap in their films. So I thought it was a really interesting and exciting choice Mm -hmm. of the interviewer for Director Park. So I'm really excited to see both of them in the same room after I watch, you know, the restoration, obviously. So I couldn't pass it up. (laughs) Yeah, that's super exciting. I love a QA, and a so I'm sure that'll be great. I know. I can't wait to see. I'm really curious about the questions Nick Reffin is going to ask. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I ho- hopefully it's awesome, and then I'll report back at some time in the future after yeah. our break. Um, yeah, we can launch in then. Yeah, let's um, launch into it. So the prompt for this month's um, pairing was Summer Hidden Gems. So this is films that maybe were kind of underappreciated, or they don't get a lot of buzz around them, I suppose. And so Remy chose Sorcerer, 
um, which is a 1977 film. And I chose Love and Mercy, which came out in, I think, 2014. And yeah, I really enjoyed viewing both of these films. I personally hadn't ever heard of Sorcerer, so I was really excited um, by that. I'm a big fan of William Friedkin. Yeah, no, that kind of leads me into a special preamble I want to do because... We announced these picks Mm -hmm. for this head-to-head like a month ago, I want to say. Yeah. And at the time, uh, William Friedkin was still alive. And since then, he has passed away. Yeah. Rest rest in in peace, peace. William Friedkin. He was a great lover of cinema and something of a maniac, but he definitely loved (laughs) movies. And it's funny because... When I originally pitched Sorcerer as my hidden gem pick, mm-hmm. it was, it wasn't because I don't think people haven't heard of it, mm-hmm. but I think it is, I chose it as a hidden gem because I think a lot of people your age and my age haven't heard of it very yeah. much. It's from 1977, like you said, and it was released and completely es- eclipsed by Star Wars. Yeah. Which is not its fault. And it is not something that comes up a ton in conversation. Now, I will say, since William Friedkin's passing, I have heard people talking about it quite a bit, just because people have been talking about his filmography at large Mm -hmm. quite a bit uh, since he died. But And so it doesn't feel very hidden at the moment, but I promise before then it felt underhyped. Yeah. And um, the Paris Theater here in New York City is going to be screening, having a screening of Sorcerer sometime in September. They are reopening in September, and they have a whole series of programming for September that's called Big and Loud. And I'll be going to one of those. I have tickets for one of them over Labor Day weekend, but it's not the Sorcerer one. It's another one that... I'll report back about. But Ooh. if you're in the area and you're interested, <laughs> you can see Google. Sorcerer on the big screen. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, that's sort of my hedging that <laughs> when I announced it, it felt a bit more obscure than it does at the moment. But that's fair. If you already know about it, then just pretend like this is a fun convo about Sorcerer as mm-hmm. my pick of the week. <laughs> oh, and then at the end, I will give a list of runners up that I considered that are genuinely more obscure, I think. Oh, so okay. Yeah. We can even it out that way. <laughs> I still think it's a little obscure because sure. you're like deep in film Twitter, so <laughs> or film X. I don't like it. <laughs> never. Um, I'm never switching over. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right that people at least my age, if you're not like deep into film you probably have never heard of this and i know and i don't know why it was really good i really enjoyed it it's such a perfect 70s suspenseful adventure just absolute dudes rule energy (laughs) movie i texted you a picture of my notes that i was taking earlier this week when I was starting my rewatch, mm-hmm. and it ju- the notes at the moment just said, Pod Notes, Sorcerer, 1977. <laughs> Dude's rule. <laughs> Dude's rule. I love that. Yeah. And like Kat said, it was directed by William Friedkin, and it's written by Waylon Green, based on the novel by 
uh, Georges Arnaud, which was called The Wages of Fear, mm. which I think is also a great name. Mm-hmm. And this was adapted from that book in the 70s. And I think it really holds up in a lot of ways, especially because it has that magical element where basically everything had to be practical effects mm-hmm. in the 70s. So things just <sighs> hold up a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> And also, it just has a really awesome premise that is long-lived in my mind, which is that in this story, you have a prologue where you're introduced to four different men in their origin, uh, in their geographical origin locations. Mm-hmm. So you see this one guy in Veracruz just straight up commit an assassination, and that's basically his entire cult open. Mm-hmm. And then you switch over to Israel and you see, uh, another person. He's a Palestinian that takes, uh, that participates in a bombing there mm-hmm. and then goes on the run as a result of that. You see this other guy in Paris, France, who is involved in a, a banking scandal, mm-hmm. a banking fraud case that is about to have huge consequences for him. So he leaves his very cool, very awesome wife and flees. Uh, she was one of my favorite characters. I do love her. She was really cool. She had really cool hobbies, great tastes in gift giving, <laughs> and also loved brunch. Yeah. So I think we could have been good friends. <laughs> um, and then our final person that we see in the prologue is... Uh, the character played by Roy Scheider, who is a member of the Irish mob in New Jersey in the United States. And he and three of his uh, mob members all knock over the wrong church, essentially, a mm-hmm. church that's run by the Italian mob, mm-hmm. which is just a terrible idea. I don't know <laughs> who <laughs> devised that plan, uh-huh. but it was poor choices. And that goes terribly awry, and he also has to go on the run. Mm-hmm. So all four of these men on the run end up in a very small mountain village in Colombia, in South America, and basically take on alternative identities and just exist there in general squalor and are basically having a pretty miserable time when we all catch up with all of them in this small town. And because they're having such a miserable time there, when a local American oil drilling uh, rig operation mm-hmm. uh, catches on fire and explodes, apparently <laughs> the only way to put out the fire from the oil drilling site explodes explosion is to use dynamite. And I don't know the logic behind that, but I trust that that is a thing that people do in those situations. Mm -hmm. But the issue is that the only available dynamite in the vicinity is really old. And so the nitroglycerin has condensed in the bottom of the crates and Mm -hmm. become extremely unstable. Mm -hmm. And this nitroglycerin needs to be transported to the drilling site about 200 miles away through rocky, jungly, mountainous terrain. And so the oil company uh, puts out 
truck driving tryouts, <laughs> essentially, and says, if anyone's crazy enough and skilled enough to drive this nitroglycerin through the jungle for 200 miles, we'll give you a bunch of money and you can get the hell out of this village that you obviously don't enjoy living in. Mm-hmm. And so that's <laughs> that's the premise of the film, is these four dudes driving nitroglycerin through the jungle. <laughs> what a premise. It's very unique. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. It was very stressful. Um, (laughs) I watched it at like six in the morning, uh, (laughs) as a pre-work movie. And I was like sitting at my kitchen table and I was just like gripping the table because I was so stressed out. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, a very effective premise, very interesting premise. Right. And it is quite suspenseful. It's, um, Definitely an interesting start. I think it's cool you get to see all four of those people in the prologue mm-hmm. uh, before they each converge. So you get a little bit more background about each of those guys and what they're running from and also what they left behind and might want to return to. Mm-hmm. But I think this movie is a great summer movie because it was filmed in, mostly in the Dominican Republic mm-hmm. as a stand-in for Colombia. But there's a lot of great jungle imagery, and it it is like one of the sweatiest movies I've ever seen. People look so sweaty and hot the entire time, mm-hmm. uh, unless it is a torrential downpour, and then everyone is just soaked anyway. <laughs> but they're either sweaty or they're in a downpour, mm-hmm. and <laughs> it looks like it's a million degrees. <laughs> yeah. So it's very summery in that respect. But... It also just generally looks great. There's a lot of really lovely landscape shots Mm -hmm. of the jungle and the mountains and these very interesting rock formations in different areas. Mm -hmm. And I think it looks wonderful. But I also think that, yeah, it is just a perfect recipe for suspense because Mm -hmm. you have these four people who aren't exactly skilled at truck truck driving, even though they were (laughs) victorious in truck driving tryouts. The only person who's really that skilled is Roy Scheider's character Mm -hmm. because he used to drive Greyhound buses. And so he has a little experience with large vehicle driving. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, the four guys, they pair up in teams of two because they can only scrape together enough parts for two ramshackle trucks. Mm -hmm. And they load up the dynamite with the nitroglycerin in sand in the backs of these trucks, and they set out across the jungle. And then they encounter a bevy of obstacles mm-hmm. that are all heart-pounding in different ways. Um, some of my favorite obstacles, just the general crumbling mountain roads, watching the, the close-ups of the tires going along the edge of the road mm-hmm. and the rocks falling away and then the tire not being on the road. <laughs> that always works. <sighs> yeah. The uh, bridge scene, obviously, I think is the most famous scene from this film where both of the trucks, one at a time, have to go across a decrepit rope bridge over a river in a raging thunderstorm. <laughs> And in both cases, one of the guys gets out and directs the driver as the driver goes across these boards that are just falling away into Mm -hmm. this raging river. And the 
the bridge is listing, the truck is listing, Mm -hmm. and almost about to tip over, and the guy is almost about to be crushed by the truck, and the bridge is almost about to snap, and there's just so many things happening at once. It's one of the most suspenseful sequences I can even think of in a movie. Yeah, especially when the guy guiding the truck falls through mm-hmm. the and the truck is like about to go over him. I'm like, why? Just stop. Just stop the truck. Yeah. Why are you still going I know. forward? And he keeps going like, I can't guy's see like, you. I can't see you. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> but he's still driving. It's like, guy. Uh, yeah. That was definitely a very intense scene. So intense. And I have no idea how they filmed it. There were so many instances throughout this film where I was like, this looks like a nightmare mm-hmm. to film. Just so much of it. There, like all of the drilling site explosions, which were extensive. Mm-hmm. There were so many <laughs> explosions that all looked 100% real. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge riot scene mm-hmm. after the explosions where the people in the town are upset that the drilling company allowed for a bunch of people in their village to die, presumably because it was doing something unsafe. And they're upset with with the oil company for that. And there's people on horseback and there's people riding and there's trucks and um, armed guards and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And I was like, wow, this looks intensely difficult to shoot. And then obviously just being in the jungle looks insanely difficult to shoot on top of it being raining and muddy and mountainous and working with trucks Mm -hmm. that genuinely look like they're on rickety bridges and rickety wooden structures Mm -hmm. it was very the ricketiness was very convincing in every way and i don't know if they just had amazing practical movie magic or if people were just constantly in danger (laughs) i feel like it could have been either one um and also something that makes this film unique is that tangerine dream did the score so it's mostly synth based Mm -hmm. and that gives it a really interesting dreamy like yeah. quality and it it's an interesting choice it's not an obvious choice for a super suspenseful movie but mm-hmm. i think it it works perfectly with what we're seeing yeah. so that's another added feature as well that i forgot to say up top mm-hmm. after we have that really suspenseful bridge scene and remarkably both trucks make it across the bridge they go through all of that just to find out that a massive tree has fallen across the road mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone is really dismayed and everyone basically hates each other but they still have to work together yeah. to figure out what to do and they get the really good idea to use the nitroglycerin from one of the crates to mm-hmm. explode the portion of the tree that's across the road so that is also another huge spectacle and i love watching everyone running away before the explosion happens. And almost every single person looks like they trip and fall in real life, scrambling to get away. And just running through this beautiful stream there that runs across the road. And ultimately, they're successful in detonating the tree that's an encumbrance and they can make it through. And then there's even more you know, obstacles like flat tires that don't go well Mm -hmm. and armed 
militia bandits and every obstacle you could possibly think of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that ultimately Roy Scheider is left on his own, just driving his truck in just exhaustion-induced hysteria, mm-hmm. essentially having hallucinations and talking to himself and just listening to Tangerine Dream and <laughs> driving through rock formations. <laughs> yeah, the ending like landscape that he's on is so fascinating. fascinating. I don't know what kind of rock that is, but it's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, it looks like an alien planet. It's yeah. Really cool. And they filmed it in, well, I think it appears to be in low light, like it's nighttime or yeah. dusk, which is a, a striking choice. It mm-hmm. looks really cool. And his truck eventually either runs out of gas or just straight up breaks down mm-hmm. about two miles away from the drop off site. So. He is so desperate and crazed by this point and the only remaining guy of the four. So he just carries it by hand the remaining two miles and then drops from exhaustion in front of this huge pyre of flame mm-hmm. in the middle of the nighttime, which is another really striking a striking scene, which looks great. And then you have a short little epilogue where... Roy Scheider has some new new clothes and a new hat, a much better hat than the hat he was wearing before. Looks much better groomed. And uh, then the Italian mob shows up mm-hmm. and it was all for nothing. And I also love that ending too. <sighs> yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool that despite everything and this guy persevering through all of these obstacles and everything possible his choices still get him in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I like that these are all very unlikable characters. Like they're not good men, um, decidedly. Mm -hmm. And so you have this group of volatile criminals that are working with one another and it makes for really great tension throughout the entire film because the whole reason one of the people even gets the job in the first place is because he goes and kills one of the truck drivers and he's like yeah. well you need another guy so yep. guess, guess it's I'm on me the team now yeah exactly they are an unsavory bunch yeah but i think it it like works so well because you still find yourself like rooting for them and wanting them to mm-hmm. succeed in their task but also you're like these people are so wild Yeah, it's just an extra layer of volatility. Mm -hmm. But you're right, you still just naturally root for them, Mm -hmm. regardless. Yeah. But absolutely, they are. They're a wild bunch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also think, aside from the really straightforward premise, Mm -hmm. I haven't read Wages of Fear. Mm -hmm. I would be interested to see the differences between the original book source material Mm -hmm. and how the film turned out but i think this movie is really interesting just as a general demonstration of how terrible companies like oil companies prey on the discomfort and the fear of desperate people to get them to do their bidding and it's a a stark demonstration of how in life people are put in positions where they act in ways they never normally would Mm -hmm. just to make enough money to survive. And it shows how people destroy themselves in service of huge immoral corporations because those corporations have all the leverage and it strips away your humanity when Mm -hmm. 
something like that has that much power over you. Like these people are uh, shooting each other and endangering themselves constantly mm-hmm. and endangering each other and making horrible decisions and literally going insane yeah. just because of financial incentives and their, uh, the positions that they can be leveraged from. So it works as a, an overall allegory for that sort of idea as well. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other first impressions that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, just one thing that I found really striking in the prologue sequence is I feel like when I think of The Exorcist, and when most people think of The Exorcist, you don't really think about that prologue sequence that's set Mm -hmm. in, I believe, Egypt, where the priest that ends up performing the exorcism, he travels to Egypt and he's on the site of this like archaeological dig and it's like a real dig and it's just I find that like sequence really wonderful and engaging and it just kind of shows this like bustling city and I think that William Friedkin also kind of brings that into Sorcerer as well, because in the prologue, especially in Israel, you're seeing um, just like all of these, all of this commotion in the city, even before the bombing, but just like the bells ringing and conversation. And it's not like particularly clean audio. And it really sounds like you're kind of watching a documentary of someone being in a city. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's just really interesting and not something you see a lot in movies. I think that it always strikes me just how jarringly different that kind of approach is. And I thought it was really cool and something that I really appreciate about the direction and cinematography. It like feels like a real place and not like an overly staged environment. And I think that that's really cool. Yeah, that's a great point. And that also overlaps with another thing that I think is unique about this film in that there's a lot of long stretches without any dialogue, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially in the prologue. Mm -hmm. A lot of it elapses and it's either in a language that's not... um, subtitled Mm -hmm. and and or people are speaking and you don't need to know what they're saying and or just no one's speaking Mm -hmm. so you just follow you get the idea of what's going on but Mm -hmm. you're not being spoon-fed any information yeah you're slowly collecting evidence that each of these dudes are kind of ruining their lives or at least creating scenarios where they need to leave Mm -hmm. their location immediately and it is definitely uh, feels like the director has a lot of confidence in the audience to hang hang with him and mm-hmm. also appreciate that you don't need to be spoon-fed information from the yeah. outset. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like a lot of some, sometimes a lot of modern movies are worried about losing people right away. Mm-hmm. And so it, they make it a little too easy. And I like that William Friedkin is not interested in making it easy. Yeah. And... Not just in the beginning, though. There's a lot of other sequences throughout where there's very little speaking, whether it's because it's just more intense to watch exactly what's happening or just simply not needed. We don't need any exposition. We know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Or we're just getting a sense of 
what life is like in this village town or other things. I just love that there's not a ton of unnecessary dialogue, but you still can completely grasp what's going on and what people appear to be feeling. Yeah, for sure. I think this is only the second William Friedkin film I've ever seen. I think I've only ever seen Exorcist aside from this, so. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I'd have to go through his filmography, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I definitely haven't seen the majority of his films, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, But that's definitely something I'd like to do in the future. Mm -hmm. Do you think Scott would like this film? I think he would. Um, You said he sounded disappointed it did not actually have wizards and or sorcerers, but do you think he'd be... (laughs) And or magic, no. Um, Yeah, I think he would be down for this film. I think that I'd be interested to hear what he has to say because I feel like we've talked about careers that we would do if we ever, like, if we hadn't gotten into the field that we're currently in. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's like, yeah, I think I would have really enjoyed, like, long-distance truck driving. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) That's uh, just an odd uh, career choice. So... Yeah, I don't know uh, if I would have picked that out for him out of nowhere. No, uh, but yeah, we've talked about that before, and so I'm I'm curious what he would think of this film for that reason as well. But it definitely seems up his alley in terms of just kind kind of like movies that I would expect him to like, kind of action adventure type films. So sure, yeah, I think he would dig it. Cool. Did Will watch this with you? No, he did not. Mm -hmm. He watched some of the prologue with me Mm -hmm. when I was watching it a couple months ago, but Mm -hmm. didn't seem... I think he kind of fell off during the prologue and didn't seem interested in following it up. It goes on for a while, especially Mm -hmm. in Paris. Paris was like kind of where I was like... It's a lot of detail. Yeah, it has a lot of detail and a lot of like dialogue, but dialogue that doesn't particularly matter that much, in my opinion. (laughs) It doesn't matter And so I'm like... This is a different vibe than, like, these, like, quick action sequences that we're seeing in the first two phases of the prologue. So, yeah, yeah, I think that that's kind of where I was like, hmm. I'm not really seeing, like, where we're going necessarily. Sure. Like, I know we're being introduced to all of these people, but I don't really know kind of where it's going. Right. I was, when I was watching it again today in the kitchen, uh, it was somewhere around the protest scene where everyone is mad about Uh. the drilling explosion. And he was looking at the screen and he knew I was watching Sorcerer Mm -hmm. for this because he knew it was my choice. And he said, oh, this does look pretty interesting. (laughs) And so I guess I feel like once it gets cooking, he would be interested in it. For sure. And I was also thinking, I know this is part of our double feature series, Mm -hmm. but if you wanted to do a different double feature with a different overlap, uh, an interesting pairing could be the Claire Denis film, Stars at Noon. That's one of her newer films, if not her newest one. It stars Margaret Qualley, who is trapped in, I think, a fictional South American country. And she went there as a journalist, but also got trapped under layers of bureaucracy mm-hmm. and is unable to leave and hates being there and desperately wants to leave and is also like hot and sweaty all the time. <laughs> 
but she uses obviously different means other than high-risk truck driving to try to get out of there. But if you also want to see someone in a similar situation who is using different means of escape, check out Stars at Noon. Stars at Noon. And then my final point, which is a question I posed to you earlier this week mm-hmm. of who who you would recruit to be on the Sorcerer Squad. Yeah. If you were perhaps updating the film or if you just wanted to slot anyone else in there, you know, like maybe pull out the assassin guy and put someone else in. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever come up with an answer? Oh, gosh. I completely forgot about this question. No, nope, um, no problem. <laughs> but I do remember I want like a real smart guy on the team, like a scientist type dude, like think Jeff Goldblum from Independence Day. That's mm-hmm. who I want on my team. Okay. I feel like I feel like that would like balance things nicely. It would definitely shift the dynamic yeah. for sure. Yeah, I kind of want that. I would love <laughs> to go on a road trip with Jeff Goldblum. Same. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I've also just seen Jeff Goldblum in so many action type movies as well. So that was like mm-hmm. an instant. It came to my mind instantly. Yeah. Um, but obviously he's getting a, a bit elderly for that role now. <laughs> but like, yeah, 80s, 90s Jeff Goldblum, I'm down for that. Yeah. I have a more youthful choice. Yeah. When I was watching this again, I was thinking, you know what? I think Alana Haim would really shine as a recruit on the Sorcerer Squad. Uh-huh. <laughs> If for, if only based on her performance in Licorice Pizza, where she also does some very high intensity suspenseful truck driving. Oh my <laughs> gosh. If her CV just lists that one scene from Licorice Pizza, I think that is, I think that should get her on the sorcerer team for uh-huh. sure. Put her in. Yeah. I still haven't seen that, but I'm very intrigued now. <laughs> yeah, that is a good question. Email us if you have. Uh, suggestions for who you'd put on your sorcerer team. Yeah, who's on your squad? <laughs> <laughs> and then my final thoughts are just a couple other options that mm-hmm. I wanted to shout out for other hidden gems. They are not quite a summary as this film, which is another reason why I selected it, despite mm-hmm. it not necessarily being that hidden of a gem. But some other true hidden gems that I want to recommend, because I always love doing that at any chance, are this film that I just watched yesterday, actually, mm-hmm. that was really great, and I hadn't heard of it until yesterday. It's a film called Pontypool, P-O-N-T-Y-P-O-O-L. Okay. It's a 2008 Canadian film that centers the entire film on a single radio broadcast as a very concerning but unique outbreak is happening in this small Canadian town. Mm-hmm. And the main character is this radio DJ guy who does a lot of uh, strange talk radio kind of stuff. And he reminded me of like a Canadian art bell. And um, it's just a, a really good, interesting, small scale film mm-hmm. that as soon as I started watching it, I turned to Will and I was like, this could be an episode of the X-Files. And oh. he was like, yes, exactly. Big so, fan. <laughs> yeah. That sounds right up my alley. It's okay. also free on YouTube right now. Oh, so check nice. that out. It's definitely worth your time. And speaking of small budget films centered on the radio broadcast, The Vast of Night, 
the 2019 film. Have you seen that, Kat? No. This is a, a really great small original film that is available on Amazon Prime. They mm-hmm. picked it up for distribution. And it also centers on a single night in, I want to say, New Mexico. Could be somewhere else in the U.S. It's set in the 50s, I want to say. And people in the town discover something very strange is happening and endeavor to find out more about it. And it's really well done. I love how it's shot. There's some really great scenes that they have in a gymnasium early on in the film that I love the way they look and how they executed them. I think it's an awesome film that everyone should check out. It's called The Vast of Night. Also seems like it could be a Twilight Zone or X-Files episode. Nice. And then the final one I want to shout out is Arkansas, the 2020 film. It stars Vince Vaughn and... John Malkovich, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other awesome people, too. John Malkovich, I find particularly funny in this film. Okay. And if you like Ozark and people generally getting up to no good in Arkansas, <laughs> I think you'd really like it. But I also think it has some great scenes regarding how today's current economic pressures often make people act in bad ways that they might not normally act. Mm-hmm. And... I really liked it as an update to that sort of idea that we're even talking about here with Sorcerer. So those are my other three hidden gems that I want to put out there as definitely worth everyone's time for checking out. Yeah. And I believe that's on Prime too. Nice. Okay. So it was, what was the first one? Pool. Pawnee Pool. From 2008. Okay. The Vast of Night from 2019 and Arkansas. From 2020. That way no one has to rewind and mm-hmm. try to dig it out. I'll put all of these in the show notes as well. Thank you. Um, yeah, those all sound like great wrecks. I love anything that can be described as this could be an X-Files episode. That mm-hmm. gets me on board real quick. So. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. So my pick for this week's episode is Love and Mercy, which is a 2014 film. It is was directed by Bill Polad. Um, he has only directed a few films, um, but he has served as a producer on many big films. Let me just look up a couple real quick. He was a producer on Wild, 12 Years a Slave, Brokeback Mountain, and Into the Wild are ones that I all recognize. Ooh, and um, The Tree of Life, the Terrence Malick film, right? Yeah, I haven't seen it. Those are some great production credits. Yeah, yeah. So he's mostly known for his production credits, but I really loved Love and Mercy when I saw it back when it came out. My mom and I watched it when it came to DVD. And um, it stars Paul Dano and John Cusack as a younger and older version of Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. And it also stars Paul Giamatti as Dr. Landy and Elizabeth Banks as Melinda Ledbetter, who is Brian Wilson's wife now. And I think that this biopic is really well done. I especially like that Brian Wilson was so involved in the promotion of it. There are a million interviews 
um, done with him and Bill Polad and some of the actors mm-hmm. on YouTube that I watched in preparation for this. And I just really love that they wanted to make this a movie that really portrayed Brian Wilson's story in a way that was cathartic for him. And I think that it's also really important. They're like huge mental health advocates. And so I just think that um, the fact that Brian Wilson backs this film is like such a strong um, plus for it, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I feel like it's so often that I hear biopics or even films about music groups Mm -hmm. that are done are often at odds with the subjects yeah people often feel the need to speak out and say this is not capturing how i experienced it or this is a really insensitive yes um portrayal and so that is also heartening to hear that brian wilson not only signed off but felt uh, compelled to promote this film that's extremely promising Yeah. Um, and I think it's about a lot of sensitive topics. So, um, it, it was really important to me that it was handled sensitively and, um, accurately for the subjects. So I think that that's one real strength of this film. Um, and it's highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes. It's about, I think it's a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm just, I've always been kind of shocked because every time I've ever brought this up to somebody, they have not seen it or haven't even heard of it. And I mean, biopics aren't everybody's thing. They're not my thing usually, but mm-hmm. um, this is definitely on my top five all-time movies. Like, I just really, really enjoy this film. Yeah, this was my first time watching it. I think I had heard of it mm-hmm. before, but didn't know what it was about. Yeah. And definitely hadn't seen it before now. Yeah. Um, What did you think of it upon watching it? I liked it. It was not what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. I also am not much of a biopic person, which we talk about frequently. (laughs) But it, I guess I realized I didn't know anything about Brian Wilson or his story from his early life or his later life. So all of it was new information to me. And I, he just seemed like a really sweet guy. And I felt very, uh, a lot of sympathy for him throughout, especially the part where he made pet sounds and then people were mad. (laughs) It wasn't financially successful because even as a non-music expert, I do know that Pet Sounds is regarded as a genius level accomplishment and one of the best albums of yeah. all time in yes. all popular music. Yeah. And I, watching him make Pet Sounds <laughs> and have a great time with the studio yes. musicians yes. was amazing. But then his his family and everyone being mean to him about it was yeah. horrible. Yeah. So before we get into I'm really glad you liked it let me say that first that makes me so happy because it's just I just think it's like so emotionally poignant and just so good but one thing that I do want to mention um with this rec is that it is a very emotional film and there I feel like it is worth giving a content warning for toxic relationships and verbal abuse and manipulation, just because those can get really intense. And if that's something that 
is um, sensitive for you, I would just recommend look- looking into it before you watch this film, because I think that that could be hard for some people. But I think that it's handled extremely sensitively, and it makes a really beautiful film and tells the story of a really sensitive, lovely person. So to just chat a little bit about the plot of the film, it's kind of following two timelines within Brian Wilson's life. The first being when he is creating pet sounds, as Remy just mentioned. And so that is portrayed by Paul Dano, who does a wonderful performance. I really like seeing him in this. He does a lot of like more serious roles. I've seen him in a lot more uh, serious roles. And this is still a serious role, but I feel like you get to see kind of a goofier side to him, a side that's like creative and excited. And I really mm-hmm. loved getting to see that side of Paul Dano's performance. Definitely really playful. Yeah, playful for sure. And it, in this timeline, he's kind of he decides to stop touring with the band because it's really stressful for him. And he starts to talk to his family about how he's hearing some voices and kind of struggling with his mental health, but it's only ever really brought up in passing. And so there's no like real support that's happening there. It's uh, kind of just like, people are like, Oh, that's kind of weird. And he kind of couches it. No one engages with him yeah. about it. It is really strange to yeah. watch, especially his brothers. It it was baffling to me to yeah. have like a relationship where you're not only in the Beach Boys mm-hmm. with your family yeah. and you're interacting with them all the time, but for them to brush off the things that he's saying mm-hmm. and almost appear to be in denial about it because it's an inconvenience for yeah. this operation of the the band mm-hmm. uh that was really alarming <laughs> yeah yeah um and so he's kind of starting to have like a a kind of break with reality um during this time uh his family comes back and he starts to be paranoid that the house is bugged and um there's like a significant conversation in the pool where he's like, you guys need to be quiet. And they're like, we're trying to have a conversation with you about the direction of the band. Like, so it's just kind of this disconnect between Brian and the rest of his family. Who's like clearly seeing him going through some stuff. And it's just like, not, they're not engaging with it in any way. And you're also seeing him interact with his father, who is a abusive person, just manipulative, petty, terrible father. And you're seeing them try to like navigate that situation as well. Mm-hmm. Played by Bill Camp. An Bill actor Camp. I really enjoy, yes. but he is villainous in yeah. this movie for sure. Yeah. But you know, like very charismatic way. It's like so frustrating to watch. And so that plot line is interwoven with John Cusack's character, um, who's Brian Wilson in the eighties. And, um, he's probably 40 at the, at this time, maybe a little older in his forties. And, um, he meets Melinda Ledbetter. She is selling Cadillacs and he um they have this very strange interaction where he's like I want to buy this car and 
she's, it, it becomes very clear in that interaction, that first interaction that Melinda is a very compassionate and lovely person. She mm-hmm. is like <laughs> just very accommodating to this person who she does not know. She does not know that he's famous. She is just being kind to him. And then she gets introduced to him by Dr. Landy, who comes up and says, like, do you know who this is? This is Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Aren't you super impressed? And Mm -hmm. she is because she grew up on the music and she loves the Beach Boys. And um, down the line, Brian Wilson calls her and asks her on a date. And so she goes on a date with him and their relationship starts to grow. And throughout this time, she's learning that Dr. Landy is like a live-in psychiatrist Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. Brian and is over-medicating him and controlling his diet, controlling when he eats, what he eats, um, and is a very volatile person. He like screams at Brian and um, scolds him and is just like, it's all bad vibes. And Melinda's like, I don't know what to do about this. And then there are multiple interactions where Dr. Landy is interacting with her on his own. It's just the two of them. And he's saying like, if you guys go out, I need you to report back to me about what he's feeling, what he said, what he did, everything. And Mm -hmm. if they do go out on a date, oftentimes Dr. Landy is there and like Mm -hmm. trying to- Or someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just clearly a situation that Brian Wilson is being isolated from the people that he cares about. He can't see his wife and his two daughters, and he's not allowed to talk to the rest of his brothers that are- uh, one of his brothers is still alive. One of them has passed at this point in the film. And so Dr. Landy has succeeded in completely isolating Brian from his family, from the people who can stop this situation, um, which has clearly grown to like a toxic, horrible level. And Melinda is like forbidden eventually from interacting with Brian because of mm-hmm. Dr. Landy. And so she ends up reaching out to Brian's family to basically prevent doc. Cause Dr. Landy is his legal guardian. Right. Apparently. Is it a, a conservatorship is I, what it seemed. That's like what it me. seemed like. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Cause he just said that he's his legal guardian. So yeah, I was they like, I don't really say that word, that. but in my mind I was, thinking this must be a conservatorship or something very similar to that, which is a thing I've learned about more recently. Yeah. Um, You know, like thanks to Britney Spears Mm -hmm. and really famous examples being in the news. Yeah. But every time I hear about them, they sound deeply not good. Yeah. Yeah. And so Melinda kind of reaches out to his family and legally helps with this situation and frees Brian from from this conservatorship slash weird manipulation mm-hmm. that he's experiencing. Right, because Dr. Landry, that's his name, right? Mm-hmm. I just think of Paul Giamatti in my head. Yeah. <laughs> um, he also lives in a house that Brian bought yeah. for him. Like, uh-huh. he's 100% parasitically yes. 
uh, profiting off of this conservatorship of Brian and is also trying to force him to produce more music, presumably mm-hmm. to yeah. make more money. So it's also, it's not just a um, troubling from a power point of view. It's also clearly for financial gain on top yes. of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I really enjoy, I enjoy this film. I always forget how tough of a watch it is when I'm watching it. Because when I think about it, I'm like mostly thinking about those studio sessions and how like exciting and wonderful those are to watch. And it's so beautiful to watch something be created. And so from a creative point of view, I think that that's just so wonderful to see. And one of the reasons I came back to this film was because I was watching a interview that Paul Dano did with... I can't remember what magazine type thing he was doing it for. I think it might've been variety, Um, but he was breaking down his most iconic characters. And when he was talking about playing Brian Wilson, he talked about getting to watch a lot of the studio tapes that had been filmed for this period of time and getting to like reenact those was really cool for him. And it's like tapes that nobody ever gets to really see because they're not there for public consumption. So I thought that that was just really interesting. And it made me remember how much I loved watching those scenes. I think he has an incredible performance. I think especially those like silly, energetic moments are wonderful. But I think as he's going through this really tough period in his life, you also see him sad and fearful and vulnerable. And I think Paul Dano does a really fantastic job portraying all of those aspects of this illness as well. Um, And I think that on the other side of things, you get to see a really just emotionally vulnerable performance from John Cusack as older Brian. And there are so many moments where you just feel such compassion for this man who has gone through so many terrible things. And there's one moment where Melinda's in the car right after meeting Brian Wilson, and she finds something that he'd written in the car. And it's like a a back of a business card. And it just says, lonely, scared, frightened, because he was like trying to get those emotions out of him at the time. And um, that moment where she finds that card is just like so sad. And you don't necessarily realize that those are the emotions that he was feeling in that moment until you see the card, which is sad. And you also feel so terrible for John Cusack's character because he just has lost all dignity. Like he's lost all ability to think for himself, to act the way that he wants to act. Everything is controlled and he just doesn't have any freedom. And when he does try to rebel, he's overcome with like paralyzing fear of what the consequences to his actions will be. And it's just so telling about what this relationship with Dr. Landy is like. And I just think that um, John Cusack does a fantastic job. And I think it does a really great job of showing what a compassionate 
individual Melinda was because I think she was very involved in in this project as well. I know that Elizabeth Banks has spoken about getting to meet her for research and talk to her about this experience. And um, I just think that that's so wonderful. Um, But it just makes you so thankful that Melinda was compassionate enough to put in the work and get him out of this situation because this parasitic relationship would have just continued until he was dead. Like For it, sure. it's just so life-changing what she did. And I think that that's just really moving. And I think that sometimes we can be like, that's too much work, or I'm just going to remove myself from this toxic situation. But she really took charge and, and did something about it. And I hope that we can all be a little more compassionate after seeing that performance. Um, and yeah, Paul Giamatti, I, that was a tough watch. He sucks. That guy sucks so bad. Um, and the discomfort I feel while watching his performance, especially in the one-on-one scenes with Melinda, Mm. the way he like follows her very closely and like leans over her car, like, and is trying to like manipulate her and charm her and just be like intimidating while doing all of that. It is so uncomfortable. And I like feel it very viscerally when he's Mm -hmm. acting that way. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I would hate to be in that situation. And Mm -hmm. she handles it very diplomatically and Mm -hmm. she doesn't like give into him, but she also doesn't like, let him know how much she dislikes him. It's like Absolutely. very clever. She plays it really well. The way that she does that. Um, and like when he gets served his papers and he's like screaming outside of her office and he feels so smug because he's like, I won. And then she opens the door and it takes all the wind out of his sails. Like that's yeah. – just like a really, really satisfying moment after all of like the power trips that he's been trying to go on with her over like the last few months in the film, I would assume. But I think in um, reality, it was years. Like I think she had been seeing Brian for two years before she had been forbidden from seeing him. And so like the timeline was a lot more stretched out, but Yeah, I just think it's a really moving film. I think that it just, it's so wonderful. It's like a really wonderful watch because you're, you're getting all the bops. You're hearing all the Beach Boy songs that you know and love. Like, there's really not much of a score. All of the music in it is pretty much diegetic. It's really cool. Um, The music that's not is usually also happening in Brian's head, which is Mm -hmm. also really cool because he's like, they do a really good job of showing how Brian composes where he like just hears something in his head and then has to like figure it out in real life and make it sound just how it was in his head. And I think that that's really cool. I mean, I think he's generally regarded as a, a musical genius. And so getting to see that creative process was really fascinating as well. So, I mean, I didn't know very much about the Beach Boys the first time I watched it at all. And I wasn't a huge fan of their music, but I mean, I wasn't not a fan. It was just that I hadn't really thought too much about it, but this movie really um, 
helped me gain more of an appreciation for that creative process and um, just Brian Wilson as an individual. So I hope that anyone who did watch it really enjoyed it. And if you haven't seen it, it's a really good watch. So I highly recommend it. It's um, available on Amazon Prime right now, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So check it out. It's one of my top films ever as a person who does not like bio biopics. So. <laughs> Do you have any other thoughts on it that you want to mention? Um, no, I think you covered all of the elements really well. I definitely really liked the ending. That was my favorite yeah. part. But yeah, I'm just uh, surprised I didn't know about any of that stuff. That's yeah, uh, crazy. I feel like... I wish people knew more about it, even just as a cautionary tale, if yeah. nothing else. But yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely one of those biopics that is certainly warranted, not just because that person is obviously very accomplished musically, but mm -hmm. there's a lot to uh, discover in their personal life that is worth conversation and worth portraying. Yeah. One last thought that you mentioning the ending made me think of one of my favorite parts of the film is when Melinda says that she doesn't want to be just another person that wants something from him. And so she goes through this like legal battle, but mm -hmm. she has no expectation that their relationship will continue. She just kind of wants him to live his free life. And he like seeks her out in the end and they begin their relationship again. But I, I really love that sentiment of, she wanted to give him this freedom and not just like have that savior complex, you know, no. of, like mm -hmm. now you owe me, you know, which I think oh, a lot yeah. of people can fall into that trap. So it's just another way that they showed her absolute compassion for this individual and desire to have him make his own choices and live his own life, which I thought was wonderful. Mm-hmm. What a good film. <laughs> it's it's a hard watch, but the ending is so happy and it it all ends okay. And so I, I just really love that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I think that I had a couple of overlaps that I jotted down while we were talking. Um, one that stuck out to me from our conversation of Sorcerer is you said that these circumstances strip away um, the humanity of people. And I think that in certain ways, it's not necessarily his humanity that's being stripped away, but it's definitely his rights as a human and mm -hmm. um, his ability to make his own decisions and uh, be live a full life has been stripped away in mm -hmm. Love and Mercy. So that was one kind of parallel that I saw between these films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually wrote down something similar in that we're watching the main character definitely breaking down and declining mm -hmm. in mental health as a result of their surroundings and their stressful circumstances. Yeah, for sure. Um, another thing that you said was that these corporations are preying on desperate people. And um, that makes me think of that relationship that was between... Brian and Dr. Landy, where Landy was just seeing an opening and milking it for all it was worth mm -hmm. financially. Yeah, exactly. I had something similar, which was basically 
just really fucked up power imbalances. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And people having power over the main subject. I'm trying to think of a parallel that's not a bummer. <laughs> I know, me too. But there's gotta be something else. They are very they're quite different. Quite yeah. Different films. They are. And I mean I guess that there's just like this is still a bummer, but there's just kind of a general sense of hopelessness prior to the the way out. Mm-hmm. Um still a bummer. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be nice if they had like a Beach Boys tape that they could pop into the cassette player? Drive Wouldn't down it be nice? drive through yeah. the jungle. Uh, yeah. Well, I can't think of anything else. There's got to be something we're missing that's more obvious, but I just can't think of it. I liked all the chickens in Sorcerer. Yeah. I liked all the stray dogs. Yeah, the stray dogs, the chickens. Maybe just good tunes. Can we say that? Good tunes. Mm-hmm. Love a good tune. I can't think of anything else. I know. If you guys think of any overlaps between these two films, let us know. This yeah. is a tricky one. for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice and we'll see you back here same place next week. Bye for now.